0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. April 27th, 2023, the Let's Finish the Job edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C., joined by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime.
1: Hello, David. Hello, Emily. I'm so
0: happy to be with you. Then... Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, Yale University's Law School. Hello, Emily.
2: Hey, David. Hey, John. Great to be with you.
0: This week on the GabFest, Joe Biden begins his re-election campaign. Is he the favorite for 2024? Then what to make of Tucker Carlson's surprise defenestration from Fox News? And then the backlash against Bud Light's marketing campaign involving trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney and other episodes of corporate America and political America coming into conflict. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter.
3: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Joe Biden announced his reelection campaign this week promising, let's finish the job. And indeed, it would be impressive if he did. He would be 86 years old if he makes it to the end of a second term. And depending on your perspective, and John Dickerson will tell us what your perspective should be, in <laughs> minute, Biden enters the presidential race either in very strong shape or in very weak shape, either with a remarkable record of accomplishment or surprising record of failure, as the head of a unified Democratic Party, uninterested in any challenge to his leadership, or as a candidate that members of his party overwhelmingly wish would not run for re-election. So, John, it seems like a contradictory presidential campaign, but how strong is he as his campaign begins? Well, right you are, David. It is (laughs) Time will tell. Yes, exactly. Only time will tell. But I mean, frankly, only
1: time will tell. I mean, we. It's. I don't mean to kiss off all of those, and it was nicely set up all of those things that are real. Which is to say that in the most recent CBS poll, only fifty-five percent of Democrats wanted Biden to run again. That's that's really low. That's much lower than it was than was true for Barack Obama, for Donald Trump. It is. Close to the numbers that Bill Clinton had, but it was at the time that Bill Clinton had just been highly embarrassed by the Republican takeover of Congress when his numbers were that low. Now, on the other hand, Bill Clinton won in 1996 rather handily. Why did he win? Well, he was able to recoup and, and retool his administration somewhat by moving to the middle, and we should talk about that in terms of the way Biden will position himself between now and the election. Of course, politics was different then, and the makeup of Congress and what you could get done was quite different. But it was also in part because he was running against Bob Dole, who did not set the world aflame, and who had issues in his own party. Well, everything you say about Joe Biden, to the extent that you are thinking this through, Again, the caveat that lots can change between now and the election, you have to think through in the context of Donald Trump, who is a singular figure to run against, who is deeply unpopular with Biden's base, and therefore, enthusiasm about Biden may not matter at all, because there's a lot of enthusiasm about not Donald Trump, and Trump has weaknesses within his own party, although everybody focuses on the super, almost impenetrable power he has over a part of the base. He also has destroyed part of the party, and that's why he lost last time. It's why his candidates lost in 2022 and why he didn't win the popular vote in 2016. So Biden has to be seen in that context, not as a candidate by himself in the history of past presidential campaigns, because we are in fresh territory.
0: So, Emily, it feels to me like Biden's greatest strength going into this campaign is that he just doesn't enrage people. He doesn't stimulate negative partisanship the way that Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or even Barack Obama did. Is that, do you think that is, it certainly was true in 2020. Do you think that's still true today?
2: I think it's pretty true. I mean, I think he has come across as like a liberal Democrat, but not as anyone who is Radical, trying to sort of be a bridge between the progressive and the more, I don't know, Obama liberal, maybe even moderate branches of his party. And he just isn't provocative in the same way. He doesn't seem to hit the third rail. And that means that he doesn't generate the kind of media coverage that leads to that kind of very sizzling polarization. That said, I mean, he does have these low job approval numbers. And they haven't really budged. I mean, I remember when they really sank with the, when the United States left Afghanistan, I was trying to think of another word than retreat.
0: Capitulation.
1: <laughs> no, I, 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 well, I guess a couple of things. This is why I said we're in fresh territory. You know, in the old days, you would say you exactly what you're saying, which is not only is his approval rating low, he can do nothing to improve it. And yeah. his approval rating is low on the issue of the economy, which people care a lot about. And normally though, the, the Implicit in saying that, you wouldn't even have to say the second sentence, which is, and that means people won't turn out to vote for him. But what we've seen is, and this is the Trump effect, and also the fact that Donald Trump is so closely associated with the Republican Party now, we saw in 2022, when a lot of people thought there was that economic determinism, which is to say that Biden's low approval rating on the economy and the Democrats low approval rating on the economy would p- punish them at the ballot box in 2022. But it turned out there were things that voters cared more about both within their base and also swing voters to the extent that those even exist anymore. And two of those things were abortion rights and the extremism of the Republican Party, whether it was in specific legislation or in attacks on the ballot on the very nature of democracy. And so the old transitive properties of low approval rating numbers equals bad outcome at the polls, I think is up for grabs in a world in which Donald Trump has so thoroughly reshaped the Republican Party and energizes so much in, in, terms, in negative terms, parts of the
0: electorate. I mean, it is Biden a strong candidate only against Trump? I feel like he is the, he's the right candidate to run against Trump But is he the wrong candidate to run against anybody else?
2: Well, if somebody like Ron DeSantis were the candidate and ran on culture war issues, then the advantage that Santis would have would be his age. But I think aside from that... Biden might still be in a pretty strong position in terms of being the person who's not polarizing and who's actually talking about the economy and the things that are kind of bread and butter issues. I mean, I really wonder whether this culture war flare up that DeSantis is pursuing on abortion and trans rights. And I just don't understand how that's really going to be what helps him.
0: He's not going to run. No, no. I mean, his general election campaign, he will just run on everyone's moving to Florida, look how great Florida is, look what how successful I am as the governor of Florida, and the culture stuff is not going to be front and center. That's my prediction. But he has to get – he has to get the nomination. He the has to get the, the nomination
1: stuff. first, which means he's going to spend a lot of time in the culture lane because if you're going to knock off Donald Trump – of course, all of this could be wrong, which is what we should always always remember. But the normal things that would knock off a front runner like Donald Trump, Donald Trump has shown he is impervious to for the last 5 years. The either gaffes or things you say wrong or indictments or, you know, being caught on tape trying to subvert the will of, you know, the strongest democracy in the country, that kind of stuff none of it has hurt him within his own party. So, the gambits to try to take some share away from him in the primaries will be on those culture war issues. I'm more pure on abortion or whatever, which means DeSantis is going to have to move you know more I don't even know what to say, to the right of Trump on those issues and then become once you know he does those things, they tattoo him and and that's that is a legacy that he won't be able to shake so easily in the general election if he gets there.
2: I mean, that's what I'm talking about. He has this six-week abortion ban he's going to have to defend, all this book banning, the don't-say-gabe. I mean, there's a, it's that trail. I don't think people are just going to forget about that.
0: It's so funny that we are talking about Biden, and yet this is Biden's great gift, is that we've ended up talking about Trump and DeSantis now for most of this this segment. Do you think, John, that Biden will not have to campaign can, last time in 2020, he didn't really have to campaign. Is he going to be able to manage to avoid it? Does he? He obviously doesn't have a primary campaign, but can he avoid a debate? Can he avoid anything which which puts him at risk of embarrassing himself?
1: The rose, yeah, I think the rose garden strategy, which is what you're describing, is a well known, time honored, and pretty easy posture for a president to lapse into, and you, it's real easy. I mean, you go out, you do an event about manufacturing. And you're doing the people's business. You're working hard on the economy. Then you like throw in some campaign lines, which he's already been doing. And that constitutes campaigning. So I think it's not that hard for him to campaign and be president at the same time. If he gets tired or doesn't want to accentuate his age, which every public appearance uh, almost certainly does, even public appearances in which people say, boy, he doesn't look as old as he is, accentuates the age question. I don't think this is turf they want to be on at all. And so... Nevertheless, I think that's possible to do, to be able to run and be president at the same time, because you can also just say, you know, I'm not out campaigning because I'm presidenting, you know, I'm dealing with problems X, Y and Z. And I think that's a plausible thing to do. Also, as we've talked about it, negative partisanship has been around for many of the presidential cycles. And so, you know, Biden will benefit from the behavior of his opponent because of all the things we've already discussed. The question on age is interesting to me because, you know, the question is, Joel Payne, Democratic strategist, said something that I, I feels true, but I wonder if it's true, not because I don't trust Joel, but I, but because everything seems provisional at this moment in politics. But you know, he said basically voters knew Biden was old when they voted for him the first time. He, you know, and so in other words, that's been processed. It'll get talked about a lot. There will be many moments of the age question, but the, the question is really whether there are voters who haven't already come to a conclusion about that and who will switch where they're going because of his age, given all the other things we've talked about.
2: I mean, I think the other question about Biden's age is whether he does something either on the campaign trail or in any other context that makes him look like he's slipping and losing it, and then that will get magnified. And then there'll be a discussion about whether that's a Biden gaffe, the same kind of thing he would have done 10 or 20 years ago, or whether we're really seeing evidence of age affecting his
0: performance. Don't get shingles, Joe. So, Emily, is... Vice President Kamala Harris actually important in this race. This is a question that's asked at the beginning of every presidential cycle. People talk a lot about vice presidential, vice presidents, and and VP nominees, and then it turns out it just doesn't matter when people come to vote. But is this going to be the one where people might vote, might think about it, might care?
2: I mean, I think because of Biden's age, it matters more than it might otherwise. It- Kamala Harris is the person who would step in if Biden couldn't do his job. She's also a more polarizing figure than he is. I'm not really sure that's her fault. I mean, it may have more to do with being the first Black and South Asian woman in this job than anything else, but it does sort of sit out there. And then there's this running narrative that she hasn't, you know... I don't even think it's like that she hasn't done her job well. It's more that people don't like her and somehow that must be her fault that sort of sits there. But I can't imagine it's going to be the main thing on voters' minds. John, am I right or wrong about that?
1: I think you're. it's obviously more on the voters' minds because of Biden's age and people will try to keep the conversation on Harris. And Harris is in a tough spot because as vice president, you always have to be super careful not to outshine the president. And that just adds a level of kind of hunched over caution. And and Harris is already a pretty cautious politician. Joe Biden was deeply unpopular as vice president, which always kind of confused me because he was m- more unpopular than Obama, as I recall. And it was like, why is he more, like what's he done to make himself so unpopular? Like there he hadn't done anything. It was just, it's a weird thing. So yeah, she's in an awful position, but I think you're, I think you're generally right, Emily, that at the end of the day, it's the it's about the president. But, you know, this election is going to be basically a, like 80 to 100,000 votes over the course of about three or four states. Right. And those are very small margins. And so when the margins are that small, it makes me think, well, anything can matter. So I'm nervous about saying that I mean, I agree with you, Emily, but I'm nervous about agreeing with you because I'm nervous about agreeing to anything because I think we're in a, a in a really weird, shifty
0: moment right now. Slate Plus members, you get so much good stuff. You get so much good stuff for being a Slate Plus member, which you can become by going to slate.com slash Plus. And we have a really interesting topic for our Slate Plus bonus segment this week. We're going to talk about Utah's new law restricting kids' social media use and the implications that will have for the rest of the country. And is it a good law? Slate.com slash Plus, become a member and hear that conversation. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
3: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS you need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com system
0: Tucker Carlson was canned by Fox News on Monday morning ending his incredibly divisive, anti-immigrant, conspiracy-mongering, vicious, and fantastically successful run at the network. So it is not fully clear why Carlson, who was by far Fox's most popular host, was dumped. But there is increasing evidence that the Fox leadership, notably the Murdoch family, were alarmed by the profane, vicious, and fratricidal things he said in internal communications that were revealed internally to Fox people as part of the discovery in the Dominion systems lawsuit, in particular referring to women guests and women executives with unprintable and unsayable terms. I mean, it's obviously a cause to celebrate. He is a specifically toxic force in American life. He made America less hospitable to immigrants, to gay people, trans people. He encouraged white supremacists. He told lies about January 6th. I think what it doesn't mean, Emily, is that Fox is now going to be some quiet voice for moderation. It's going to be Romney hour on Fox now at eight (laughs) o'clock.
2: Yeah, Mitt Romney should audition for that job. I don't think he has another one right now in the Senate. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, I think that as we talked about when we were discussing the Dominion suit against Fox Fox has all kinds of reasons to stay in its inflammatory right wing lane because that's what its audience wants and it is feeding the audience. So I don't think we're going to see broader moderation. I think this had to do with a cult of personality. And it seems like the Murdoch's just lost patience with it. I mean, it is telling that for all the things Carlson did on the air, it seems pretty clear he's being fired for what he said off the air. And he seems to be a seriously committed, pretty disgusting sexist. So sure. I mean, those things are bad, and I'm glad they seem to actually care about them at Fox after the firing of, you know, Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes. It does seem like they take that with some modicum of seriousness. But the things he said on air were the things that were so bad for the country in the way you're saying, and it doesn't seem like those gave them pause. I mean, we have a long track record of him saying all those things, and they were silent or stood by
0: him. So Fox has replaced its central figures repeatedly, Bill O'Reilly Glenn Beck, Megyn Kelly, and each time it's become ever more poisonous and ever more damaging to America. So I am confident. I am confident in their ability to find someone who can channel as much rage and division and tell as many lies as Tucker did. There, so Jesse Waters, one of the people who they brood about as a successor, possible successor figure, isn't as smart as Tucker Carlson, but he is a lot, and he's a lot more ferret-like than Tucker Carlson is. But he is certainly capable of feeding as much of the conservative id. So do you think there's any chance, John, that that actually Tucker Carlson's departure does pull back what Fox does substantively?
1: Only for lack of talent, if that's the word to use, that can compete with Carlson. Because I don't think Carlson's going away. He posted something on Wednesday evening that draws all of the attention and passion of those people who loved him so much. What he posted was a kind of um, celebration of what he said was the truth. I mean, this much of this was implicit, but essentially he was saying, I spoke the truth and nobody on the left or right is speaking the truth. And so he was vague, but essentially he was presenting himself implicitly as the guarantor of true discussions. And it's a funny thing because on the one hand, so far in the Republican race, to the extent there is a Republican race, the best question substantively about issues that really matter to the presidency was asked by Stucker Carlson about Ukraine and what U.S. interests are there and a series of other questions that he forced Republicans, including Ron DeSantis, who had a big stumble about this question, forced them to answer because of his audience. And that's really important and useful. And so that's great. But the idea that he is the speaker of truth, of course, is undermined by the actual truth. You know, Part of what is at issue in this lawsuit, distinct from what got him fired, which all the reporting is, as, as Emily and you suggest, um, that it was the way in which he spoke about his colleagues and women in general in the most possible de- degrading terms is, is that he, the, the point of the whole lawsuit was there was a big disconnect between what Carlson and others were saying privately and what they were telling their audience in public such a disconnect that the company had to settle for $787 million. So to then come out and say, I am the one guarantor of truth is is um, not consistent with the truth.
2: So presumably, Carlson has a non-compete clause that means he can't go right back on television. He probably has some kind of non-disclosure agreement, which means he can't tell all about Fox. I bet
0: if he gets fired, he can go back on television. Don't you? John, I mean, you know this, John, you're on TV.
1: Yeah, that's something his lawyer will be fighting over right now.
2: I mean, it just depends what your contract says, right? It's like Exactly. A, anyway, yeah. just stick with me for a second. Even if he went back on television, it wouldn't be with the same – I mean, it's hard to imagine another network hiring him right now, another major network. So he could go do a podcast. There are certainly ways to have influence, but it's hard to imagine him having the same kind of platform.
1: Oh, I think he – I mean, I think if, if, you know, thousands of people are willing to line up under a bridge to watch – John Kennedy Jr. come back to life. There are people who will do weird things in order to find content that they want. And if you look at his post on Twitter, just a single post and the amount of engagement that got, I don't think it's that hard
0: for him to get the core of his audience to follow him wherever he wherever he will go. We've seen this game. We've seen this before. Bill O'Reilly and Glenn Beck both went through this and neither of them maintained their audience to nearly the extent. And they neither of them more importantly, maintain their influence. Like Fox is a unique platform. Fox plays everywhere. Well, that is an excellent counterpoint.
2: Yeah, I'm going with with that at least at the moment. So what I wonder is whether Carlson's going to run for office and he is holed up in Maine. Hard for him to imagine running in Maine, but at some point, I mean, he's young. He's incredibly charismatic. He's a rock star on the right. Doesn't it seem like at some point you could imagine this guy running maybe immediately for national office in some way?
0: Well, he could run for president
2: or vice president.
1: What could he win? I the problem is he'd have to get, climb over Trump, and that's not. Trump has to go away for him to. Otherwise, it's a really brutal thing for him. Secondly, I think that we what one thing we might be missing um, is the is the battle between Carlson and Fox that's going to go on right now. I mean, there are a lot of people who are well, angry at Fox for getting rid of him, and and that might play out in a public way. Fox has kind of thrown in with DeSantis at the moment. So there may be a way in which this becomes a proxy war also for that
0: debate within the, the right. I, I mean, it, t- it will take a lot to convince me that Fox is not going to remain the, the kind of foundational platform for the right. It, Fox is the lingua franca of the right. Stelter Brian Stelter made this important point, which is like, you focus on these 3 million viewers that Carlson had, but that's not what matters. There's 60 million Americans who are kind of in the Fox ecosystem. Yes. And probably 30% of American old people are in that ecosystem. And it, that does not that habit does not change quickly or easily, especially when they're as good as they are at creating... A kind of narrative about. I
2: think he's pr- that Carlson could be pretty good vice president fodder for one of these Republican candidates. You think that's crazy?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the problem is here's the. I mean, here's the actual political problem. If he ever decided to run, is wait, w- w- you can't go ask women for the vote when you have a track record your entire career uh, and and in legal proceedings of saying and treating and being as disgusting about women as he has apparently been.
2: I mean, except see Donald Trump when he read for office. I guess he lost. So.
1: Well, he but Trump lost. He keeps and he keeps losing and he's like destroying the party because people have to keep like saluting him, even though he says and does these things. And and even Trump doesn't hasn't said the kinds of things that Carlson because it's not just the words that Carlson used. It's that in an instance in which a woman is asserting some opinion or behaving in some way that he does not like, he chooses at that moment to to make the basest claim about their ability to do anything based entirely on the fact that they are a woman. That's, can't get much worse than that.
2: I mean, I would like to agree with you that that's disqualified.
0: So Tucker was axed the same day that Don Lemon, CNN star, also was bounced from his network. He had, of course, said derisively that Nikki Haley at age 51 was beyond her prime, which Emily Bazelon, who I believe is 51 years old. I
2: don't know. I might be beyond my prime, <laughs> but it's a terrible thing to say. And I don't it's, mean to be.
0: I totally, I, at 53, I am undoubtedly beyond my prime, but I do understand the anger.
1: Everyone's kidding, but I think prime is a fascinating concept, by the way. Because there's a lot of people who are in their prime who are a lot older.
2: Yeah, for sure. Like, you could
1: literally turn this on its head, is that, in fact, you are in your prime when you have the wisdom of experience. I mean, in a lot of other ways, you know, you can have life beating you down into a a mere grease spot upon the highway. But there are many people for whom age, they only get better. I, I would like to be one of those people, but I've apparently read about them in books.
2: I mean, I think Lemon's problem, too, is in that moment, he doubled down on the ridiculous thing he was saying and then, you know, didn't successfully back up from it and uh, is on the air with two female co-hosts who he sometimes seems like he's talking over, etc. But I mean, he is obviously not in the same category as Tucker Carlson, right? I mean, I think these are relatively minor sins in the sexism lane. Not great, not great, but not the same level.
0: It feels like Lemon's caching was part of the effort to tone down and depoliticize CNN because, I forgot who I was listening to talk about this, it's really unclear what CNN is outside of a news crisis. CNN, I had this realization yesterday, I'm sure this is not my realization. CNN depends on news to thrive, whereas Fox depends on the absence of news to thrive. Fox thrives when it chooses a story to tell, which is entertainment. It chooses a narrative to tell about America But when there's actual news, people turn to CNN because they want facts. And that, in fact, gets to why Fox's role on election night is so it's always been so precarious because they're trying to tell a story to manufacture about a a narrative about what's happening in the real news story of the most important news story America has in politics. And it runs up against the actual facts. And so they're trying to manufacture a narrative a time when people just want the facts. And so this is why these two networks are are kind of they don't actually I mean they do compete with each other but they're in totally different businesses. And 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 CNN thrives at a time when Fox won't and Fox will thrive at a time when CNN won't.
1: This is such excellent analysis and the and the election aftermath was that tension you described David extended over a long period of time which is that there was this narrative being created by Trump and his supporters and they Went along with the narrative, but like still had this tiny vestigial wrestling with the fact that that narrative was completely at odds with the reality of the planet on which we spin.
0: Man, there is just a lot of conflict between brands and politicians these days, but corporate America and political America are engaged in a kind of struggle, unlike one that I've can remember seeing in my lifetime. So we're going to talk today about the battle over Bud Light. The battle over Bud Light is over. Conservatives have won. Bud Light in April enlisted Dylan Mulvaney, who is a trans woman and a social media personality who I had never heard of before this segment, to be honest, to kind of endorse the beer, which had been losing market share to Michelob Ultra. And various conservatives who have been swept up in the anti-trans fever that has obsessed the cultural right exploded. Ben Shapiro, Kid Rock. Kid Rock shot a case of Bud Light. Travis Tritt, the the singer, removed it from his tour. It was very ugly and depressing. Bud Light sales dropped 17% basically overnight. And anheuser Bush has now put the two marketing executives behind the Mulvaney campaign on leave. Meanwhile, we have on the sort of other side of this, Disney has announced that it is suing Ron DeSantis, essentially because Ron DeSantis is punishing Disney for political speech, for making statements about its political positions on certain laws in Florida. And then DeSantis had explicitly is retaliating against them. And so you have these two interesting spectacles of conservative politics at war with corporate America. Emily, like, I guess on the on the Mulvaney, there is so much rage and anger and upset on the right about these, about trans people in a way that is completely incomprehensible to me.
2: Well, also it was really hateful and individual. I mean, as this was breaking, I wasn't paying a lot of attention. And I assumed that there had been some action other than just like Bud Light sending Dylan Mulvaney some beers and her saying like, thank you. But there wasn't, this was just about her personhood. I mean, it was just incredibly just hateful and discriminatory and ugly. There wasn't, I don't know how else you can really think about it. You can have a dispassionate analysis about whether Bud Light misread its market share, right? It's not identified with liberal or progressive causes and, you know, some of the people who buy that brand apparently feel alienated. But in the end, this is just a, a human being, like a, a very positive presence as far as I can tell. And I don't know, if if that's not surprising, I think it should still be pretty shocking.
1: I had the same reaction you did, Emily, because all of us have to sort, at least at one level or another, the 97 explosions of outrage and and how when to engage and how much to engage because a lot of them are baiting exercises. And so – to engage is to give fuel to malevolent actors And so when I first heard about this I thought oh they must have launched a set of national ads show you know during the NBA playoffs and all but I think that it goes beyond I mean it is obviously at its very core about personhood and so I don't want to distract from that but I think the the response on the right is it really that unfathomable David because this this is a thing that on the right the whole trans concept is, Deeply disturbing, and they f- and the response is don't put this in my face with your beer or your whatever other companies that are you know forcing this on me. I think that's that's a familiar response.
0: Yeah, no, I get. You're right. It is familiar. It's just it's it's depressing. The hatefulness is so depressing. I it's and the obsession of it is so depressing. And and the the fact that it, there's been like there's a genuine important debate about the best way to help people who are trans and children in particular who are trans. And there's a real issue, and Emily, you've written about this, and it's been, you know, that has been lost in what has become this kind of incredibly vicious, hateful, cruel campaign against human beings.
1: I think the secondary point is that a lot of people on the right say that essentially, those who are trans are being affected by a kind of psychological contagion that is whipped up in the air. And so they would see this as a part of that, too.
2: Right. But then there's so much shaming that goes on, right? I mean, the message from this is just that it's not okay to be the person who you are said to like, a a fully formed adult who has been, you know, thinking about this and performing about it in a super positive way. I mean, that's the problem here
1: of course of course but they don't see it that way they don't see it that way they see it as as like a performance and and don't influence my community with your performance because it's contagious like they don't see the essential personhood and the individual at the center of this that's which we've all been saying but that's why it's easier for them to say that this is something else
0: right right Right. That, like grooming, a word no one had ever heard of 12 years ago or 12 months ago, practically.
2: Yeah. And save the children has become a real theme, too. But I mean, I think that's a problem with, you know, both this backlash of the campaign and also these bans on medical treatment for kids when, you know, individualized decision making is should be important. There should be a way to have some nuanced conversation about kids, but it's just being completely lost because the right wing backlash has this cruel streak to it.
1: We should talk about Zoe's effort.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about that, too.
1: I interviewed Zoe Zephyr, a representative in Montana, who she's now been forbidden to speak for, censured and forbidden to speak for the rest of this term. Zoe Zephyr, who is a trans woman, stood up and argued against a bill that would outlaw gender affirming care for any minor in Montana and in the course of making her case she said that the lawmakers who voted for the bill would have blood on their hands and the argument which is is obvious which but may not be to the to the people who are listening is the is that if you shut out trans kids from any gender-affirming care. And by the way, this was with parental consent, that you essentially create the conditions for suffering, which can lead to suicides. Anyway, that language was what was offensive. There was a several days, or several weeks, actually, where she was not called on or allowed to speak through the rules and procedures of the legislature. And then now it was made official. So what it connects to the Bud Light, obviously, is the, we've talked at various times about cancel culture. I mean, There is definitely a canceling that is going on in these two instances. And obviously, there are parallels to what happened in Tennessee.
2: Right. I mean, the actual silencing of her on the floor for months is a lot like the Tennessee legislators being expelled, right? You have this supermajority of Republicans, they're deeply conservative, and they're just literally not letting her talk on the floor of their chamber.
0: Emily, before we leave this topic, there's slightly different iteration of it, which is we have Disney... This week suing Ron DeSantis and Florida saying that DeSantis has engaged in a campaign of government persecution against Disney because of things that the, the company said, in particular, the criticism that the company made of the don't say gay law that, that DeSantis has pushed in Florida, that DeSantis passed in Florida, and that DeSantis explicitly is retaliating over and over again against Disney. Is that going to work out? This is this a good lawsuit Makes sense? I've never heard of a suit like I'm this. I'm not
2: I. sure. I mean, it's really interesting. It is true that corporate entities have free speech rights. And so when you think about that part of it, okay. right?
0: So said the conservative justice. Hey, you know, Court.
2: companies are people. They have corporate personhood. And I mean, that's part of what Disney is arguing. I, it's hard to tell with this suit whether it's really about the legal issues or whether it's also just about trying to push back politically and change the conversation because DeSantis has just been going after Disney so hard. And does Florida really want to do that, et cetera? So I haven't sorted that out in my own head, how much this is about law versus politics.
0: Really interested in how this turns out. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are suing a governor and having, having sued a governor, you were then having a drink. Emily Bazelon, what are you going to be chattering about?
2: I was really interested this week in a decision not to run for re-election that Kim Fox, who is the state's attorney in Chicago and Cook County, made and announced. Her term goes through the end of 2024, I believe, so she's making this announcement way in advance, and she's been a really striking figure in the progressive prosecutor movement, someone who speaks with incredible authority and empathy based on her own experience. She is a victim herself of child sexual abuse, which she talks about very movingly. And she grew up in a poor community in the housing projects in Chicago. And she has really brought all that to her job. And and been a force for change, you know, in terms of addressing past wrongful convictions and trying to have at least less incarceration in Chicago. And I'm really curious to see what she does next. But part of her justification or what she said about why she was stepping down was that because people in Chicago just elected a progressive mayor, she felt like some of her policies were likely to continue without her. So anyway, she's a she's just a really interesting, charismatic figure. And we'll see what happens
0: was on the Gabfest when we did a live show in Chicago not so many years ago. My chatter is about a delightful article in The Atlantic this week called The Wedding Sting, How a Police Department Tried to Save a Failing Rust Belt Town by Luring All the Local Drug Dealers to One Party. It's by Jeff Mache. And it's a just crazy story. I mean, It's a story out of another time. It's Flint, Michigan in the early 1990s. And it's about a couple of cops, a man and a woman who'd been doing undercover buys, lots and lots of undercover buys. And they had evidence about all kinds of local drug dealers in Flint who had been dealing. And they had enough for warrants to put together warrants for the arrest of all of these drug dealers. But they... They were worried that if they addressed arrested one of the drug dealers, the others would just go dark and and would it would be they did the, the cops didn't really have the resources to go out and find them all. They so so it was a worry that they would all go to ground if they arrested one. And so what they did is they decided to stage a wedding between these two cops who'd been doing undercover buys. They, they were posing as a couple. And so they had a wedding. And they set the whole wedding up and invited all the drug dealers and as well as a lot of cops to be guests at the wedding. And it's just, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic story. And you have to stay for the end because there is a surprise twist at the end, which really pays off too. So check out The Wedding Sting in the Atlantic. John recorded his chatter earlier because it was was under time pressure. And also it was so extensive and it required encyclopedic research. And he was consulting books the whole time he was doing it. Here's John's chatter. My chatter is on the
1: magical properties of music. To me, musicians are the closest thing we have to actual wizards. They can conjure a feeling and then make another human soul have that feeling or launch another feeling inside of that person. Writing does this too, of course, but it's rare when a line of a book can stop you on the street the way a song that comes on shuffle can do that to you. And the magic is not exactly what the music tells you so much as the place it creates for you to feel something deeply. What it comes to me to you might actually shock the author of the actual song. I once recited a John Prine song called My Mexican Home at a tribute to him when he was still alive. And I always thought it was very generous of him not to afterwards, because he was in the audience, come up to me and say, all that stuff you found, all that stuff you found in my song, I didn't know I put it in there. I listened to a version of that song, My Mexican Home, about a 100 times in preparation for that event, and it was on a live album where John sang with a guy named Josh Ritter, and this introduced me to Josh Ritter's music, which I didn't know about before, and Josh himself has a song that he wrote with one of those lines I'm talking about. The song is called Only a River. It was sung by Bob Weir of the Grateful Dead on his album, Blue Mountain, and the line is, only a river gonna make things right. And I know exactly what that means, though I couldn't tell you what Josh Ritter thinks it means or what it should mean for you if you were to listen to that, but the song is in my regular rotation. And what's always interested me about this magic of song is that the connection essentially is between songwriter and listener, and it says that basically you are not alone. This thing you're feeling, I feel it too in this massive world. Though, as I say, you may be feeling different things than the author of the song and what they felt when they wrote it, but at bottom, you feel less lonesome. On the other hand, the process of creating a song is often so lonesome. You can write a song alone in a dorm room or in the stairwell of your dorm, and you are all alone. And then who knows if anybody likes the song, and that accentuates the loneliness of putting these lyrics that you feel are so true out into the world. But sometimes a song goes out into the world and it travels, has its own life and makes all those connections with listeners and works its magic. And 25 years later on the other side of the world from the dorm in which you wrote that song all by yourself, the people of Nagoya, Japan can have that song sung to them by Bob Dylan, which is exactly what happened to Josh Ritter's song, only a river. Dylan had never sung it before. It was a beautiful version because Dylan has stopped shouting and his voice sounds lovely someone posted this to Josh Ritter on Twitter, and he was shocked to learn this. And Ritter then told the story of writing it alone in his dorm room. And he said this, to all my friends out there making art, it's not always this easy seeing the ripples your work makes. But take the story of my little song, only a river is comfort. Art travels, voices carry. Your art is out there in the world making its home in many places, many hearts. I was moved by this because I believe it so deeply. And I Posted Josh's song, Only a River, on Twitter. I don't know him at all, but I wanted the world to know about this song. And he replied. It turns out he's been a GabFest lifer, which was a mighty fine thing to learn. Josh also happens to have a new album out tomorrow. It's called Spectral Lines, so you can go pick that
0: up. Listeners, you've got chatters. We've got answers. Please keep your chatters coming to us. Tweet them to us at Gabfest. Email them to us at gabfest at And we have a chatter this week from Elizabeth Trovel.
4: Hey, GapFest listeners, my name is Elizabeth Troval. I'm recording this from Houston, Texas, where the GOP is trying to overturn election results from 2022 and pass laws that would allow the state to take over local elections in Harris County. Republicans say it's because last election day, a bunch of heavily GOP polling locations ran out of ballots, and they say the ballot shortages targeted Republicans and affected the outcome of the local elections. So in a new investigation by the Houston Chronicle, reporters Jen Rice and Alexandra Koenig went to figure out exactly what happened on election day. They interviewed dozens of election judges, analyzed voting data, and found no evidence of widespread disenfranchisement, and that the 20 or so affected polling locations by the ballot shortages leaned Republican just by a small margin. And I just... I think this is such critical reporting as Republicans in Texas pass laws to expand state authority over how elections are run locally, especially in places like Harris County an increasingly blue and diverse county.
0: That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jared Downing this week, stepping in for Shayna. Thanks, Jared. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond, Senior Director for Podcast Operations, and Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Follow us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Potts. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week, except I won't because I will be on vacation. Somebody else will talk to you. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? There are new laws in Utah. Starting in 2024, March of 2024, Kids are going to be restricted in their social media use in Utah. So the provisions of SB 152, which I think has now been signed into law by Utah Governor Spencer Cox, is that all users have to be age verified before they can open or maintain a social media account. Parents have to give permission to minors before the minor can open a social media account. Minors cannot use social media from 10.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. unless a parent changes their settings. And the platforms have to ensure that children cannot bypass those restrictions. Parents have the ability to access a minor's account, including all posts and private messages. And social media platforms are limited in what information they can collect from minors. So I love this law. I'm really interested in this law. I'm excited about it. I think it's a great step. But let's discuss whether I'm right in being excited about this.
2: Before you go on about your love for this law, let's just note that there are some real concerns about all the data that the law is mandating be collected about kids. Like, presumably, there's going to be a giant database with a lot of identifying information that could be hacked, etc. So I'm not sure that's necessary for a law like this. But from a kind of civil liberties privacy perspective, that part, I think, is a problem.
0: Oh, yeah. And all the companies that exist now, which are not protecting children's rights, are doing such a good job protecting all the incredible... I find that invocation of like, oh, now data is going to be in danger. The data of children is going to be in danger. Now it is. And so we have to prevent this law, whereas there's 150 other examples of companies which have been careless, negligent with data about all of us, including children. So... Don't give me that argument.
2: Okay, fine.
0: Oh,
1: she's just representing (laughs) a point of view. She's not actually Two wrongs don't make a
2: right also. But but what do you like about the law? Make the case for the law because there is-
1: That
0: was just a a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.
5: Hi.